two questions to start. Are you full of good intentions but often fail to follow through? You might be loud and bold in the presence of company about a whole range of things, diet and exercise and self-control and even in the nature of following the Lord Jesus. But in the end, what you've declared boldly in front of others, you end up not having the conviction or the courage or the wherewithal to follow through with once you're on your own. Second question. Do you think it was a light thing for Jesus to bear our sin? If you think it was a light thing, you'll respond as if it doesn't make any difference. You'll live with Jesus half-heartedly. Sin will be no big deal. Uh, Jesus will be on the sideline of your life. You'll pay him scant attention. If you think it was a huge thing, your whole life will tell the story. You will stand in awe at the nature of his sacrifice and the extent of his mercy and the depths of his love. Today, We see a man who was bold in the presence of others, full of good intentions, but went to pieces when he was on his own. And we get an astonishing glimpse into how Jesus felt about his impending death. Last week, we saw a little bit of his understanding of what it meant, that his giving of his body and the pouring out of his blood would be for many, for the forgiveness of sins. That's how he understood its significance, but how did he feel? about what was to take place. So two headings. Firstly, looking at Peter's good intentions, saying, I'll die with you. And then Jesus' agonizing feelings and his resolve in the end to say, in effect, I'll die for you. Firstly, then Peter's exclamation, I'll die with you. Peter had the best of intentions. See, Jesus had announced in line with Old Testament prophecy that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will all be scattered. He is referring to himself as the shepherd and his sheep as his disciples, saying that when he is struck, they will scatter. And that's what we see happening in the ensuing verses. So he says to them, you will all fall away. Now, that's another deep bombshell for his disciples from Jesus. Remember last week, one of you will betray me, one sharing this dipping bowl. That was a bombshell. That was bad enough. Now, all of you will fall away. It's interesting the word that Jesus uses here. It it means to stumble and fall. It means a lapse rather than an intention. Jesus says they will all just fall away. It's a great warning for us, isn't it? Rarely will any of us wake up one morning and say, that's it with Jesus, I'm through. Rather, over time, we may just fall away. First thing, usually, we'll stop coming to church or come less regularly. And then we'll fall in love with some sin that we don't want to give up. And then we will just grow slack. I was only talking to someone recently who said that in recent days, recent months, they have far greater questions than they ever did about the Christian faith and way more doubt. Well, friends, that's not hard surpri- not hardly, it's hardly surprising in the case of this individual because their attendance at church has become more and more spasmodic. They've dropped out of their home group. 
So it's no surprise because their trust in Jesus has not been nurtured and strengthened by the body of Christ for which it was designed. Here's a warning. You can have good intentions. Like Peter, I will never fall away. I won't. They might. But unless you intentionally put in place safeguards and habits and practices, your best intentions may only last a matter of weeks and months. Did you note Jesus' response to Peter's rather arrogant response? Even if all fall away, I never will. He's put himself on a real pedestal there, hasn't he? I'm a cut above those other slackers, Jesus. No, you're not, Peter. Sadly, no, you're not. Verse 30, I tell you the truth, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Another bombshell. Before this long night is over, Peter, you'll say you'll never know, knew me. You'll disavow any knowledge of me. Peter comes back. Have a look with me at verse 31. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Well, all the others thought that was a great thing to say, so they chirp in the same thing. Same here, Jesus. I'm, I'm full of good intentions. Every time I confess my sins and recall with sorrow my failings, I never want to go again there, Lord. I never want to do that again. I'm going to be faithful, Lord. I'm going to spend more time in prayer, Lord. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to love and serve Susan. I'm not going to lose my cool when little things go wrong. I'm going to stand up for what I believe. I'm going to speak for you, Jesus. That's on Sunday in church. And then Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, gone out the window and it's not that I often intentionally do something that grieves God's Holy Spirit it's almost that without noticing I find myself in the middle of something that I said I'd never do again Lord help me Lord help us good intentions I won't ever fall away even if I have to die with you I'll never disown you but good intentions are not enough. We need prayerful dependence on our Father. We need to walk more closely, more humbly with Him. We need, as Jesus goes on to warn His disciples, to watch and pray so that we will not fall into temptation. We need, as Jesus said, to draw close to Him. We mustn't rest on our laurels. You know, interestingly, I heard a couple of years ago that some frail elderly people were asked to actively keep a record of moments throughout each day when they may have had a fall, when they were most likely to have had a fall. So they were purposefully then on the lookout for the risk of falling. And because they were purposefully on the lookout for the risk of falling, they had less falls. Brothers and sisters, this is how it has to be for us in our spiritual life. Alert and watchful to the risks of falling. 
For it's when we grow complacent and overconfident. It's when we become slack in prayer. It's when we ignore the word. It's when we become distracted or overwhelmed by the cares of the world. Then we fall. Watch and pray. So that you will not fall into temptation. But we move now from Peter's proud boast, I'll die with you, to Jesus' resolute Consider declaration, I'll die for you. The words used to describe how Jesus felt here are very sobering. Someone has said that nothing, nothing else in all the Bible compares to Jesus' anguish and ag- ag- agony here. Not Abraham when he was called upon to put his son to death. Uh, not David when he lost his son born of his adultery to Bathsheba. Jesus is in utter torment here. He's crying out. He's sweating profusely at Luke's, adds Luke's gospel. So why? What, what is going on here? Surely we have heard of individuals who face the prospect of their deaths with seemingly greater composure and courage than Jesus does here. Socrates greeted death as a friend and a, as a liberator to a better life. Uh, the Stoics preached uh, resignation, serene resignation to fate. Why does Jesus, who predicted his death and yet kept heading to Jerusalem to meet it, now, appearingly, think twice, have second thoughts? The answer must be that Jesus is aware of facing something more serious, even, than the physical death that awaited. We know why he was going to die. Back in Mark chapter, 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he's going to die as a ransom for many. L- last week, he's going to pour out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. But here we see what that will entail, something of what that will entail for him. Let me ask you, what, what might it be like to stand before our holy God and answer for our sin? For every failing in every act of rebellion we have known. Now let me ask you, what might it be like to you, for you to stand before a holy God and answer for every failing, every rebellion of every person in the world throughout history? That's what Jesus was going to do. That's what he was anticipating. It's so clear in Isaiah 53, isn't it? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Friends, here's the reality. We focus a lot on the physical aspects of the cross. And uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, laid that out for us in all its glory. But that wasn't the worst of what Jesus was anticipating. He was anticipating drinking the cup of God's wrath, the accumulated fury of God for all sin, for all mankind, over all time. That's the cup of which Jesus speaks. That's the cup that he asks be taken from him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 we read that God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus of course, to be sin for us. That's what Jesus was anticipating. Being cut off from God, bearing the weight of our sin. So what does Jesus pray as he contemplates this hour? 
I tell you what he doesn't pray. He doesn't pray as I some, hear some Christians praying. Oh Lord, I just, uh, I'm just believing for a miracle today. I'm just believing you're going to take the cup from me and I'm claiming it. No, he doesn't pray that. He certainly says all things are possible. So he acknowledges that God is in charge and that God can do everything, anything. And then he simply says, take this cup from me. What he doesn't know is if God will take the cup from him. And that he leaves to God. So there is certainty, God can do anything, and uncertainty, he may not answer this prayer. That may not be in his will. And so he says, as he taught us to pray, your will be done, not, not my will, but your will be done. His desire to obey the Father, to surrender to the Father's sovereignty is greater than his desire to save himself or serve himself. So he submits to his Father's will. He decides, I will die for my people. Well, that moment, the, the moment of Jesus' struggle and agony seems to be completely lost on his disciples at this point. They fall asleep, the, the spirit was willing, the body was weak. It happens a second time. They, they don't even know what to say to Jesus, uh, verse 40. In the third time that it happens, Jesus is exasperated. Enough, he says, and the sense of the word is, what's the use? And Jesus stands to meet his betrayer head on. The disciples are brought to their feet, if not to their senses at that point. And the end begins. I wonder if this moment is lost on people watching here today. Do you know what this means for you? You are so deeply and wonderfully loved that Jesus was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you might take the cup of life. Because he chose not to be free, you are free. Free from the bonds of sin. Free from the penalty of sin. Free from the power of sin. Free from the wrath of the Father. Free from death. Free from the evil one. Because Jesus was crushed, you won't be. Because he died, you live. Are you sleeping? Does it bore you? Or does it thrill you? Do you get all its significance or you, are you struggling to understand? Keep, keep watching if that's the case. Do you understand what's been done for you? The depth of it? The profound nature of it? Or do you make light of it? Are you silenced in awe, mouth open in shock, humbled in heart, grateful to the core of your being? He has so loved you. Do you love him? Our loving Lord and Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the depths of Jesus' love for us and the surrender of his will to your sovereign hand. Father, it wasn't your will to take the cup from him. He took the cup. He drank your wrath. 
He saved us from our sin so that we can be forgiven and made right with you. Father, we're humbled, we're thrilled, we're thankful, we're grateful, we stand in awe. And pray for grace this Easter as it approaches. That as we reflect on what you have done for us, once again we pray that our love for you might grow all the more and our lives wonderfully transformed into the people that you would have us be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.